You're listening to the Good Friday service preached at Sojourn East. On Good Friday, we pause to remember Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Hey, my name is Mike Cosper. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn East, and welcome to Good Friday. Thanks for being with us. Those of you who are members and regular attenders, thanks for those who are strangers who are just coming to check us out. Um, Good Friday is an interesting day because it's a day that the church has celebrated uh, throughout uh, much of church history. And so as we gather today in these strange circumstances, um, even though you may be alone in an apartment watching this, maybe you're in your house with your family, maybe you've gathered with a friend or two, um, you're actually joining with the global church to recognize the importance of this day and to recognize the importance that the death of Jesus is something worth remembering. As I've approached this year's uh, Good Friday, I've been struck by two interrelated questions, questions that I think Christians of all stripes throughout history have had to wrestle with. The first question is why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And the second is, what did Jesus accomplish? Um, You could phrase those a number of different ways. Um, um, Why did Jesus have to die? Meaning, what happened because of Jesus' death? And then the question of what did Jesus die for? What was, what was the problem that he was trying to solve? And in some ways, the answer to the first question is, is pretty straightforward. I mean, the moment you become a Christian or the moment you hear the gospel, you become familiar with, with this part of the story, this question. Uh, the most famous verse probably in all of the Bible is John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul, nearing the end of his ministry, writes this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So if that's why Jesus came to, to save sinners, um, this is a truth that we learned and that was probably driven into us the moment we became a Christian. But it leaves me with another question. What did Jesus die for? What is it about us that Jesus had to reconcile? What was worthy of death in what we've done? And to answer that question on this day, I want to visit a story that's in the Old Testament, uh, a story whose main character is actually not a person at all. It's a piece of furniture. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's a tricky story to tell because it's one that is told across several different chapters of several different books, Um, but I'm going to do my best to summarize it rather than read for the next 25 minutes. And it starts in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Israelites are at war with their neighbors, the Philistines. This is not a new thing. Israel is not in a good place with God, and so they're losing the battle, and they decide Um, You know, in the past, it has worked where this thing, the Ark of the Covenant, would be brought forward into battle, and they would conquer their enemies as a result of it. So they call for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to the battlefront, but they lose the battle anyway, and the Philistines capture the Ark. So in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see amazing things that happen once the Ark is taken by the Philistines. They take it to a place called Ashdod, to the temple of a god named Dagon, and If you can imagine this God, he's kind of a merman. Uh, He's kind of a warrior hero for them. Well, they put the temple, they they, they put the ark in the temple and they shut the doors and they go home and then they come back the next morning and the ark uh, is right where they left it. But the idol of Dagon is lying prostrate on the floor before it. And so 
they think, well, that's strange. They put the idol back where it belongs. They go about their business, close up the temple, go home, come back the next morning. The idol's back where it was before, prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but this time its head and its arms have been broken off. And what this is, is this is God essentially sending a shot across the bow to the Philistines saying, you've made a big mistake in taking this with you. It's time to take it home. They don't get the message though. And so shortly thereafter, the whole city breaks out in boils and sores and in tumors. And they know that this is wrath, that this is because of the ark. This is because they've done something that they shouldn't have done. So rather than send it back to Israel though, they send it to a city called Gath. And basically the exact same thing happens there. They, the ark comes to Gath, the, uh, the whole city breaks out and boils and tumors. And they say, we've got to get this thing out of here. So then they take it to a city called Ekron. And Ekron's like, no, 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 we don't even want it. We've gotten the message. Let's get this thing back to Israel. And messengers are sent to Israel that the, the ark is coming back. And there's, the story is wild. Um, if you read it in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, um, there's all kinds of people are dying. There's blood sacrifices being made. There's gold idols being exchanged, all to try to make peace uh, between the Philistines and Israel over ownership of the ark. Eventually, the Israelites take control of the ark again, and they carry it to the house of a man named Abinadab. And it stays there for a long time. It stays there for several decades. And if we fast forward all the way to the reign of the King David, uh, David wants the ark back in Jerusalem. It's in, he wants it in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where it belongs. So he, he gathers up a group of men to go and get it. They gather up the ark. They load it on an ox cart, which is important to note, and off it goes. And then we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It said, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, I think if we look at this story too superficially, we look at it and we see this tyrant God who's just casting wrath out left and right. But there's a lot that's happening just beneath the surface that's worth exploring in some more detail because of the importance of the ark and because of what it represents. First of all, what was the ark itself? It was essentially a big chest in which the Ten Commandments themselves were held and a number of sacred objects. But more importantly, it was representative of the presence of God. The ark was the very place that God's presence would be made known each year on the Day of Atonement. So it was sacred. You couldn't touch it. It had hoops on the edges where long acacia poles were slung through and they were used to carry it. What we see in this story then is not just a story about a sacred object, but a story about the way various people related to the presence of God in their mess. And I want to point out three specific aspects. Looking first at the Israelites and the Philistines in, in 1 Samuel, we see them treating it superstitiously and viewing it as an object that gave them power. Fundamentally, God was a means to their own ends. The presence of God was a means to their own ends, something to be used to prop themselves up. 
In many places in the Bible, we read the phrase that God will not be mocked. And here he proves his point. The Israelites lose the battle and the Philistines are plagued with sores and tumors. Second, there's a subtle thing that happens when David returns to pick up the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. It's that it's loaded in an ox cart. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's an important, the, the, architecture of the ark is important. There are these hoops on the side of the ark. And the reason is there's supposed to be acacia poles that run through it, and the ark is supposed to be carried. Specifically, it's supposed to be carried by the Levites, which were the, the, the priestly tribe of Israel. Chronicles 15, 14 makes this explicit. It says, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. In other words, we the, the ark must be carried. It's said again, again, and again. It's also mentioned in uh, Numbers 4.15, in Deuteronomy 31.9, in Joshua 3.3, and again in Joshua 3.6. The ark was meant to be carried. It was never meant to be put on an ox cart. So what we see, the second thing we see here in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is spiritual laziness. Either they were too lazy to carry the ark for the long journey back to Jerusalem, or they were too lazy to understand the word of God and know how the ark was meant to be treated. And then the third thing that we see is spiritual presumption. The law, of which Uzzah was certainly familiar with, made it very clear that no one was to touch the ark itself. It was only to be moved by those acacia poles that ran through it. So power, laziness, and presumption. So before we connect the dots between this and Good Friday, let's see if we can connect the dots of, between these points in our own lives. When it comes to power, it's easy to see the ways, uh, as a pastor, that people have used the name of God and God's word specifically as a tool for power, for manipulation, for control over people. It's been in the news a lot. You've seen big-name pastors from big-name churches falling from grace in very, very public ways. But let's look at it through some other lenses. Husbands, do you wield your biblical responsibilities as a leader, as a tool by which you can manipulate your wife? Wives, do you do the same to your husband? Parents, do you do this to your children? Are your kids worn out and stressed out and exhausted by the pressure of expectations that you're putting on them by manipulating God's word? Are you, as Paul put it, exasperating your children? Just like it did with the Philistines, those attempts will come back to bite you. It may not be with sores, it may not be with tumors, but it may be in broken homes, lost jobs, and in children who don't speak to you anymore. Anytime you see people manipulating others in the name of God, it's spiritual abuse, it's grasping for power, and it's just like the Israelites dragging the ark into battle without humble hearts, just like the Philistines placing the ark in the temple of Dagon. Eventually, those chickens come home to roost. In the family, it means a spouse who feels browbeaten or leaves. With the kids, it can lead to rebellion and rejection of the faith. But let's not stop there. There's, there's so many ways in which we attempt to use God for our ends. Tell me if any of these phrases are familiar to you. God, if you'll just save my marriage, I'll do this. God, if you'll just get me that promotion, I'll do this. God, if you just let my team win, I'll do this. Ask yourself if the hunger to get what you want, to grasp for power, outshines the hunger you have to love and know God. 
Now, power goes hand in hand with the next two categories because often when we're not bargaining and trying to manipulate God and others, we're spiritually lazy. Spiritual laziness comes when we're comfortable, when things are good. It comes in many forms. At its heart, it sees the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card and little more. I remember a pastor years ago telling this great story, this, this illustration, um, where he says, you know, describe, uh, imagine for yourselves uh, a marathon that's getting ready to start. So you've got all these runners and they're all, you know, lined up by the starting line and they're stretching and they're, they're you know, they've got their gel packs, you know, or so I'm told, that's something runners do. Um, they're getting all ready for this run and uh, they, they get in place and they fire the, the starting pistol and a bunch of runners run across the line and they get like 10 or 15 yards into the course and they start jumping up and down and shouting and going, we did it, we did it, we did it, we did it. That would be the way many of us approach the gospel. God presents us with life eternal and we cross the threshold and say, oh, we've made it. We've accomplished it. Folks, the gospel invites us into a marathon, not to cross the line that marks us from out to in. In fact, Paul uses the analogy of a race often when he says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Near the end of his life, he wrote, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. The author of the book of Hebrews also uses the analogy of a race in Hebrews 12, 1, where they write, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set up before us. The point of the Christian life is not that we have made one good decision, though that is so important. It's important to take a moment and say, Jesus, I want to live my life for you. But that means that you're inviting yourself to live your life for him, to follow him, to follow him wherever that may go into a kingdom kind of life. Because the cross is the place where we meet God, but the cross is also the place that leads us to the resurrection. It's Good Friday and it's a day to mourn and today to remember that we've been atoned for, but Sunday is coming. And with Sunday, we are invited into a kingdom kind of life, a life in which we pour ourselves out seeking to know God. See, the failure of the Israelites is a failure of spiritual formation. They weren't the kind of people who could choose faithfulness over expedience. That's a call for us. We should desire to live our lives in such a way that people meet us and they experience the fragrance and presence of Jesus Christ. And that takes diligence, pouring our lives into his word, into community, into all of the transformational, <clears throat> excuse me, into all the transformative practices that he's given us. As Dallas Willard was fond of putting it, he said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Finally, we get to Uzzah, perhaps the most puzzling of the story's turns. But what's the problem with Uzzah? His motivations must have been good, but his problem is one of presumption. Again, if there was any command that these Israelites would have been intimately acquainted with, it's this, you don't touch the ark. It's representative of the very presence of God, and to touch it is to court death. But Uzzah's fear was that the ark was going to fall into the dirt. And as R.C. Sproul once famously put it, 
The sin of Uzzah was in believing that his hands were cleaner than the dirt. Do we take God and his glory for granted? Have we lost a sense of awe? Have we lost a sense of fear? I would challenge you that if you don't regularly reflect on the holiness and the power of God, the infinite ways in which he's wonderful, beautiful, and utterly set apart from everything else in the cosmos, you are robbing yourself of seeing the glory of the gospel for what it truly is. The sin of Uzzah was to presume that God wouldn't mind him touching his face when Uzzah had unclean hands. So just as we need to look outward at the glorious face of God, we need to also look inward. We need to see Uzzah's story as an invitation to look deep in our own hearts and to see the darkness that lies inside every single one of us. The ways that we're not just broken, and and brokenness is an important category. It's important to recognize that we've been wounded and that our wounds have brought out dysfunction in us. But that's not what I'm talking about here because we can't blame all of our sins on our wounds because we're also rebels. We're also people who want things that we don't need, we don't deserve, that uh, that don't contribute to the flourishing of the world around us. That's what the Romans chapter seven is all about. Not just brokenness, but actually rebellious. How are we deliberately pushing against and dishonoring the will of the one who made us? This question has been especially challenging to me this week as I've worked to prepare this message. I know I'm messed up, broken, but I also know I'm a rebel. And I think God gives us this story to remind us that we can't take God's holiness lightly. So now let's go full circle. Let's go back to the other question that we started with. Why did Jesus die? More more acutely, why did Jesus have to die for a bunch of power-hungry, lazy, and presumptuous people? Why did Jesus die for rebels? Who would choose to do such a thing? Well, ask yourself this. What, what causes a parent to forgive a wayward child? What causes a spouse to forgive a wound from their partner? What causes a friend to forgive failure for being present in a time of need? What causes a holy God to forgive self-seeking, lazy, presumptuous people who simply want him for what he, they could, he can do for them? The only possible answer to this question is love. An unquenching, relentless, self-sacrificing love. God does not just put up with you because he has to. In fact, he doesn't have to. God could have abandoned us to our sins and quite literally let the whole world go to hell in a handbasket. But he didn't. Because God is love and not a hair falls from your head that he hasn't seen and counted. And if ever you struggle to believe that God loves you, yes, you, you have only to look to Good Friday to see that he does. Over the past few weeks on Sundays, Kevin has asked us what the opportunities are presented to us by this strange season where most of us are trapped in our houses with more time than we might know what to do with. He's challenged us to seek God's face and to look inward. And on this Good Friday, I think it might mean looking inward to see how deep the darkness is that's there. Because no matter what you see, Good Friday reminds us that in Jesus, God has spanned that gap to bring you home. Let's pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, 
lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.